Good morning once again, everyone. As always, a privilege to be able to spend some time with you opening God's Word and as always, just trusting that the Lord alone will speak to our hearts and minds today. I'm going to uh, open with a word of prayer before we get into our passage this morning, which is John chapter 11 and verse 45 through to the end of the chapter, verse 57. And so as always, we're just seeking uh, the Lord's will, the Lord's Word, and the Lord's way as we've been going through the Gospel of John together and just trust that He'll speak to our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Lord, thank You again that this morning, <clears throat> as we gather, that we come with not only knee bowed low, but hearts bowed, trusting that once again, You would speak to our hearts. Thank You that You are not a God who plays hide and seek, but a God who longs to be known, a God who longs to be seen. A God who longs to be in relationship with each and every one of us. And I just pray again that as we open Your Word, that we'd trust in Your Spirit alone, that You would guide and direct, mold and shape, and make each one of us. Plant seeds within our hearts, and may we grab hold of Your words and Your words alone. Anything not of You, may it go in one ear and out the other, but those those things from You, may they go deep within us and allow those seeds of righteousness to bear fruit. And I just pray again this morning that only in that confidence that You are both here, that You are speaking, and that we need only be listening, that we would come to a heartfelt understanding of Your words, Your will, and Your way today. And so I thank You both for the encouragement and the, and the challenges of Scripture that we might be pressed to move forward and grab hold of You and everything You've grabbed hold of each one of us for. And so I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at John chapter 11 and verse 45 to 57. But as we're going to open the word this morning, I'm going to remind you of a few things. And that is that as we go through the scriptures, we're going to be looking this morning at the people's response. And perhaps more specifically, some of the leaders, the priests' response to Jesus having raised Lazarus. And after Jesus raised Lazarus, uh, I want to remind you again that as we've been gone, that again, John used a word that others did not use. And that word shows up in our English translation as the word sign. And that word sign meant an attesting miracle, meaning a miracle that specifically attested to the fact that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, the one whom God had promised from the beginning, whom they were all waiting for. And Jesus, when He came, I remind you again that everything Jesus did said something about who He had come to be. He didn't just do things. He didn't just make things happen for no reason at all. And in fact, what sets the Gospel of John apart is that He is not just following the story of Jesus, where Jesus went, what He did, what He said. No, John was specifically picking out the many things that Jesus did that specifically pointed to the fact that He was the Messiah. The attesting miracles. And everything Jesus did said something about who He was. And so as we've read through the Gospel of John, remember this, He fed the 5,000 and after which He said, I am the bread of life. He didn't just multiply bread. He multiplied bread. He fed their physical hunger so they might understand that Jesus Himself had come to 
fix their spiritual hunger. He, in John chapter 9, healed the blind man. And it had never been done before where a man born blind had gained sight. And He didn't just open the eyes of the blind man. It's in these moments that Jesus said, I want you to go and tell no one, but present yourself at the temple to the priests. Why? He didn't want word to go by gossip to the priests. No, this was one of the specific messianic miracles that was going to point to the Messiah. And so when He healed the blind man in John 9, He said, go straight to the source and let them know what happened. It was a sign to the priests that He was the One. And when He went, and I want to remind you of their response, but listen, Jesus would open the eyes of the blind and say, I am the light of the world. He didn't just take darkness from a man's eyes. No, He did it so that the world might know that He was the light to take darkness from the world. But, wherever there is revelation, we've said this before, revelation always demands a response. And what we're going to look at this morning is how we respond to God's revelation. Because it is easy this morning to look at these words, look at these Scriptures, and think, wow, how hard-hearted could those Pharisees be? Wow, how lost could those priests be? And yet all the while, if we're not careful, we can do just the same in our own right and way. And so this morning, I'm going to entreat you not to look at the priests, not the Pharisees, not your neighbor, but your own heart as we look at, at, at our, our response to God's constant and consistent revelation. Listen to these words in John 9. And I'm going to read in John 9 first so we kind of remember a relationship that's already begun between Jesus and these priests. It says this in John 9 verse 24. After having healed that blind man, remember, they go and say, listen, Who healed you? And when He says Jesus, they don't want to believe it. And then, they don't want to believe Him. So they go and get His parents. (laughs) Who is this man? We're His parents. All we can tell you is, what? He was blind, and now He can see. He's of age. Go ask Him. They come back, and here it is. The second time. John 9, verse 24. A second time they called the man who had been blind and said to Him, Give glory to God, for we know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled Him and said, You are His disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we we do not know where he is from. Verse 30 says this, The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears him. 
Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Notice the revelation was all around them that Jesus was the Messiah they were waiting for. And yet, they didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to hear it. And so, they began to take the evidence and when it says they put Him out, it means they sent Him out of the synagogue. Banished, right? The temple. And when they sent you out, it was more than, than we can probably imagine today. Because that temple was the center of social livelihood. It's where you gained God's forgiveness. It's where you went to make sacrifice. It's where you went to worship with the community. It's where you met your neighbor. It was, it was there that you met with and prayed with God. And if they put you out, you were being outcast from religious life, social life, the community at large. And so they began to threaten. Well, as we read on today, it gets worse for the priests. Why? Because not only does Jesus heal the blind and then go on to say, I am the light of the world. What does He do? He goes on to raise the dead. And what's He going to say following Lazarus? I am the resurrection life. Everything He did said something about who He was. I'm the resurrection life. And as He performed this miracle, listen to what it says. Now in John 11, verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what He had done believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Now I want to stop there. Remember what we said at the beginning? That word signs means what? A testing miracle. The Pharisees themselves knew. They said, listen, what are we doing? This man is performing many attesting miracles. He's fulfilling all the prophecies. It says then, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in Him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. And I want to stop there because immediately they reveal a fear. And what's the fear? That if Jesus continues to perform these attesting miracles, soon all men will believe in Him. And if they do, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see, they had a fear, and that was this. Remember, it was the priests who were at the center of that social society. You wanted forgiveness from God? You went and sacrificed with the priests. It was there that you found a pathway to unity with God. It was them who were at the center of it all. It was they who at that time, while the Romans were ruling, had allowed the Jewish priests to do 
uh, and and continue with the Jewish culture, Jewish law, and as long as they didn't do anything outside of their boundaries, they would allow them to keep and continue on with their Jewish traditions. The fear now is that if someone, uh, now perhaps the Son of God comes up as King of the Jews, what's the Roman response? Oh, you're going to make a king over Caesar, are you? Well, now, not only are you going to lose your place, priests, you're no longer going to be because now if all men believe in Him, they'll go through Him for forgiveness. They'll go through Him for sacrifice. And now, they're going to take away your whole nation because if you rise up a king, the Romans are going to do you under. You see, now in a moment of panic, they realize that if Jesus is who He says He is, and many of them, remember, were missing it all together, even His disciples, the closest people to Him of all, when Jesus was about to die and had told them, the Son of Man must suffer. Remember Peter? No, you don't. (laughs) No, you won't. (laughs) And what did Jesus say? Get behind Me, Satan. Why? Because as they were fighting over who would sit at Jesus' right hand and His left, at the throne after they thought Jesus would rise up as a political leader and a and a new king for Israel. They were seeking physical redemption for a nation. And all this while, my time's up, I better end. <laughs> while they were seeking physical redemption, Jesus had come what? For spiritual while they were looking for Him to take up a throne and a life in power, here, in meekness, not weakness, He was preparing to lay down His life. They had all missed it. And now the priests were afraid that if Jesus would continue to do what He was doing, be who it was He was saying, they would lose it all. Listen to Caiaphas' response. You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. From that day on, they planned to kill Him. Notice those words, do you not take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish? He was speaking a word of truth. But that word of truth, inspired by God, One man needs to die for the nation that all may not die. That was true. And it was exactly what Jesus was preparing to do. Yet in his heart, wrong. He spoke truth, but in the will of his mind, heart, and soul was leading a life of deception. And what was it? Whereas God was preparing one man to die on behalf of a nation that they might be healed and have spiritual life, 
they were going to prepare to kill one man so that they might preserve their place and a nation's physical life. And it leads me to question this this morning. How often am I prepared to put good spiritual things to death in order to preserve my own comfortable human things. Jesus was going to die. Die so that they might truly know how to live. And yet here they're going to put Him to death in order to try and preserve the way that they're desiring to live. They had a lot to lose, didn't they? They were the center of society. They were the religious order. And now it was all being threatened. And in their mind, it was easier for one man to die. They weren't the first to do it. Remember King David in Samuel? Think of King David just for a moment. A man who had a heart after God's own. And what did David do? Second Samuel chapter 11. He slept with a woman named Bathsheba and after he found out that Bathsheba, though he knew it was his neighbor's wife, Uriah the Hittite, a man in his own army, a good man who fought for the king. What did he do? He took her. He slept with her. He impregnated her. And when he found out that she was pregnant, remember his first response? Tell Uriah to come home. Tell Uriah to come home so that he can come and sleep with his wife. Cover it up. Surely he'll think it's his baby. And you remember Uriah? He came home from the army and what was his response? How can I possibly sleep in my own bed with my own wife when God's army is out there sleeping on a battlefield and he chose to sleep on the doorstep of the king's palace? It didn't work, did it? So David said, listen, send him into battle. And when he goes in, I want you all to withdraw from him. He was prepared what? To put an innocent man to death to what? Preserve a way of life, a guilt, a sin, a comfort that he wanted to keep. And you know what? It's not just the physical. We think murdering men might be the only way. I've always find it interesting to come back to the first time we read in Scripture that God's anger burned. It wasn't in the garden when Satan deceived Eve and they ate along with Adam. It wasn't when Cain murdered Abel. It wasn't even at Noah's time when the whole world was wicked. It tells us God's heart was sorrowful but it does not tell us that He was angry. Do you know when it was? In Exodus and chapter 4, when God comes and Moses, after having walked 40 years in the desert, God comes to him in a burning bush and says, Moses, I'm preparing to save My people. I want you to go. And Moses is filled with questions. God, what if? (laughs) What if they don't believe Me? Who will I say sent Me? And God says, Tell them, I am sent you. But what if they still don't believe Me, God? And God said, listen, put your hand in your cloak for a moment, right? And He took it out. Anyone remember? Leprosy. 
Put it back in, Moses. Puts it in, takes it out, healed. Pour that water out, Moses. Blood pours out of the pitcher. He gave him signs. He gave him wonders. He gave him confidence that God Himself was with him. God was behind him. And yet after all of this in Exodus 4, and I wish we could read for time's sake, we won't, God comes and says, now go, Moses. And Moses stops and says, one more thing, God. I've never been eloquent even from my youth. Do you remember God's response? Moses, God is the one who makes men speak or dumb, silent. God is the one. And I even, I will be in your mouth and control your tongue and give you the words to speak. Isn't that amazing? To think that God Himself is going to be with you. Here's the first time we read God's anger burned. Moses had question, 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 question. God had no problems with questions. But after answering every one of Moses' questions, and here's his answer, I'm with you, I'm enough. Here's Moses' response. Chapter 4, Moses, you know what? Send somebody else. (laughs) Not enough. Here's the moment. God's anger burned. Why? Because he knew all that God was. He knew all that he had available to him through God's presence. And yet his response was what? Not enough, God. Send somebody else. In that moment, he took God's offer, God's ability, God's way, and he put it to death (laughs) to preserve his own comfort to preserve his own feelings of inadequacy, to preserve his own, what? Desire not to go. And this is the moment God's anger burns. And I wonder how often today we take good, righteous things and we are willing to put them to death, put them to the side in order to save something else, something not right. Though perhaps that something is all of good intention. Oh, those priests wanted to save their place and their nation. But that's the lie. It wasn't theirs at all. It was always God's. It was God's boat. It was His to float. Right? They were holding on to something that they needed to let go of. And let God. But God will lose the nation. You know what? They needed to see that this was God's way of saving the nation and the evidence was all around them. And yet they stopped. There's some passages that I have grown to appreciate. One of those is in Hebrews 6 where there is a a grave warning of the sinner in verse 4 where it says, Listen, for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, listen to this, to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. By knowing the glory of God and yet choosing what? to go their own way, to go the other way, they're crucifying God again. They keep putting Him to death. That passage goes on 
and, and compares those people to soil that drinks the water of the rain and yet produces no fruit and, and simply it is worth the fire. And I have to keep asking myself, what position, what place, or what pleasure on this earth seems greater than the presence of the Prince of Peace? And today, I am pushing to protect it. When today I should be longing that Jesus is in the midst of it. I think of seasons in our life and uh, we have some friends from Quebec with us, which is wonderful. Hopefully you guys get a chance to meet them. It's brought back a bunch of memories of our time in Quebec and ministry there and our love of the people of Quebec. And, and uh, I'll never forget in our time early on as newlyweds, and I may have shared this before, but as we entered ministry in Quebec, it was not in easy circumstances. Not easy times. One of our first homes that we lived in was a log cabin uh, with horsehair and tar shoved in the cracks, no windows, so we put plastic up, and we were there into November, the, the first year, and so our cat's water would freeze solid. Um, we'd get dressed under the duvet covers because it was too cold, and, 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 but, and when we would ask, because there were no lights there, there was no electricity in that cabin, and strangely enough, we actually chose to live there. It was a bit weird, and, and so we are. Probably one of the favorite places we ever lived we'd ask the people that were running the place, can we have a lantern for light? And they'd say, no, too much money. Or we'd ask, can we have something for heat? And they'd say, no. And we'd ask, you know, hey, we're, we've been working hard, can we have some time off? And the answer would be no. And we'd go out and there'd be times in which we'd be helping people. Uh, I remember one day when I, uh, on my day off uh, of ministry, went and helped a widow who needed some trees cut up that fall in her backyard. And when I got back, I was greeted with, where were you and why were you wasting your time? We are like widows. We are like orphans. You should have been chainsawing here. We have trees. And it was 24-7. Anytime you weren't doing the work, you were made to feel guilty and that you were worse. And there were days in which we had days off and we didn't want to go out because they'd be looking for you and have jobs ready for you if it seemed at all like you had spare time. And I'll never forget the one day we were trying to sleep in and we could see the silhouette of someone between the curtains trying to peek in to see if we were still there to say, hey, are you there? Because they had another job for us. And you know what we felt? No rest. No rest. And there began to be a season where we were longing for rest but couldn't find it anywhere. And any time we tried to protect it, and we didn't have a car, so even if we wanted to borrow a car, we had to ask for a car. And another opportunity to say, no, you don't need to go there. So uh, we couldn't get away. There was nowhere to find rest. And you know what? The more we tried to gain rest, the more it seemed to slip through our fingers like sand. And there was a moment I can remember that we prayed, Lord, we need Your rest. You know what we need. And we're going to trust You for rest. And you know what? I don't think we could ever put our finger on when it happened, what changed, or even how it changed. But all of a sudden, there began to be something that was rest. And that rest wasn't found in our protecting it, deceiving to make it, making up excuses for it, running away to find it, avoiding people to create it. Do you know what I'm saying? 
We could do all these things to try and make this thing happen, and it all failed. And yet the moment we came to the Lord and said, Lord, we need rest, in that moment, all of a sudden, rest. Because it wasn't something that to, to be made. Something that our Maker wanted to give us and bless us with. Rest is not found anywhere but in Him. And here's a group of people today longing for a nation, a position, a place, a safety. And the more they fight for it, the less they find it. But if only they would come. I want you to listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3. says it this way, we are, we are the true circumcision. Philippians 3 and, and, and verse 3. We are the true circumcision who worship in Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I call all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Isn't that great? Paul understood that his education, his occupation, his background, his blamelessness by his laws, all rubbish when it came to Christ because he did not want a righteousness based on self-righteousness. He wanted nothing less than the righteousness of God. And this morning as Paul would go on and in Philippians actually in chapter 1 he'd say, listen, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I wonder what I'm putting to death in hopes to keep alive what should actually be put to death so that I might really live. Does that make sense? I'm wondering today what I am desperately trying to keep alive that needs to be put to death so that I might really understand what it means to really be alive. And today it might be different for all of us. We might be fighting to keep a job that we think is ours and our livelihood. We may be fighting to keep a position, a friendship. We might be fighting to keep something and all the while God is saying, let go. And until you die here, you can't live over there. The moment those priests would acknowledge that their position and place needed to die, a curtain was going to be ripped so that the Holy of Holies could be accessed by everyone, not just the priests, but everyone. When they began to realize that soon... They weren't needed for sacrifices because the sacrifice was here. If they could only die to their own clinging, to an occupation, to a place and a presence, then they'd begin to see that God was about to offer true life to everyone.
And I wonder how often I begin to set my abilities more than God's abilities. My ways over His ways. My longings over His longings. But today, as we go out these doors, God is calling us not to fight for our human position, but God's rightful place on the throne as the Prince of Peace. And so today, as we conclude here, I just want you to note that as we go out this door, trust in a God who communicates. That as He is faithful, He is always putting His finger on each of our hearts and reminding us of those things. And perhaps even now, as He is with me, He's putting a finger on your heart and saying, hey, you've been clinging to something and it's time to let go. I've got something better in store, but you'll never know until you put it into My hands. You're hanging on to something and that's yours, but it's not Mine. And you're never going to see the fullness of the fruition, the joy of what it means to walk with Me until you can release it and relinquish it. Give it to Me and allow Me to be all I can be. And today, and I'll conclude by reading a few verses in Proverbs in chapter 3. Listen to what the writer of the Proverbs says. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on a tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And it will be healing to your body, refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce so your barns will be filled with plenty. I just think how often I have what I have and I am so busy trying to store it up, keep it, Save myself from a coming drought. And here's God. I want you to give it away so that your barns may be filled. Don't trust your understanding. Trust mine. And when I say give it away, give it away. Here I'm fighting for this and God says, let it go. And as I'm fighting, God says, listen, let me. Today, what has God said needs to be put to death? The 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 Pharisees and the priests were going to put Jesus to death to save a nation and to preserve their position. Today, we need to put our position to death. Our place. So that He might live within us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understandings and in all your ways acknowledge Him. I hope that as we go out these doors today, 
that would be a great reminder and in the week to come that God is going to be leading us into places, positions where He's going to be asking us to lay down our lives that we might truly see and know His. That we might not just gain physical life, save and keep ourselves physically, but that we might know life spiritually. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is Jesus. But we will never know that life until we die. Die to self. And die to the things we hold so dear over Him who is our God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that today we can again be reminded that You are a holy God. A King of righteousness. And while often we are willing to put good and write things to death to preserve our own comfort, our own finances, our own protections. Often it is our own agendas that need to be put to death. Thank You that today You came, that You might be the bread of life, that You might be the light of the world, that You might be the resurrection life, and today that You might be death to the sin that we are so easily entangled in so that there we might find life. I pray that today we would be reminded of these things as we go out these doors, that we might be those who live for the things of God, not the things about God, but the true things and the very nature of God that resides within us. Thank You that You bring us to this place. You are constantly revealing Yourself. And where there is revelation, it demands a response. And I pray again that we would not be blinded by my own ambition, our own spiritual hopes and dreams, but in our longings to be obedient children to a loving God that the world may know where true life is. Thank You for all that You are in Jesus' name. Amen.